Hi, I'm Emily from Wildwood, Missouri, a pharmacy resident at the Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center School of Pharmacy in Amarillo, Texas. You're listening to Pharmacy Forward, a podcast about transforming knowledge into action. Hello, and welcome to the Pharmacy Forward podcast. My name is Josh Fleming, and my co-host today is Dr. Bria Lewis, a PGO1 community pharmacy resident at the University of Mississippi School of Pharmacy. Hello and welcome. In this episode, we will discuss the role of collaborative practice agreements in pharmacy. In today's discussion, we will highlight the process for establishing collaborative practice agreements. Last year, we discussed credentialing and privileging to expand pharmacy services. Today, we are going to talk about collaborative practice agreements as a way to expand services. Collaborative practice agreements create a formal relationship between a pharmacist and a provider. Bria, I am really looking forward to our discussion about collaborative practice agreements with our guests, Dr. Charmaine Rochester and Dr. Jeffrey Tingen. Dr. Rochester is the Associate Director of Clinical Services at the P3 eHealth Program, Professor and preceptor for the Ambulatory Care Residency Program at the University of Maryland Medical Center. Dr. Rochester also practices at the Center for Diabetes and Endocrinology under collaborative practice agreements with physicians and nurse practitioners in the management of tobacco abuse, dependence, as well as metabolic syndrome. But she's also worked for the Board of Pharmacy, giving her a taste of the regulatory side of collaborative practice agreements. Our second guest is Dr. Jeffrey Tingen. Dr. Tingen is a clinical pharmacy specialist in ambulatory care at the Virginia Commonwealth University Health System with the Department of Family Medicine and Population Health and Department of Pharmacy Services, where he works under a collaborative practice agreement to provide chronic disease state management, polypharmacy consultations, and works with the care team for transitions of care. Additionally, Dr. Tingen serves as an ambulatory care preceptor for the VCU Pharmacy Residency Program and provides undergraduate medical education within the Department of Family Medicine and Population Health. Charmaine and Jeffrey, welcome to Pharmacy Forward. Thank you. Thanks for having me. For those who've worked in outpatient settings, CPAs or collaborative practice agreements have been a way for pharmacists to provide expanded and elevated levels of care to patients in a variety of settings. Each of our guests today have had extensive experience in initiating and practicing under CPA. Jeffrey, in all the sites that you've worked in, how many of those had a collaborative practice agreement and what does it take to set that up? Some would say that I have been fortunate that I've always had the opportunity to practice under a CPA during my residency training years as well as throughout my career. In terms of setting up a CPA, it is important to ensure that your pharmacy leadership team is supportive, as well as the medical team that you work with, so that you have buy-in and you can be successful. It is very important that you review your state board of pharmacy and board of medicine regulations so that you know what is required to have a CPA. You should do this even if your institution already has CPAs in place to make sure that the organization and yourself are following regulations you may actually find that your institution is requiring things within the CPA that is not required in state law. You should also check with your institution's credentialing committee and legal team to ensure that you don't need to have your CPA reviewed by those committees. Reach out to your board of pharmacy if you have any questions. 
most boards of pharmacy, in my experience, are more than willing to answer any questions and give clarifications when they're asked. You should also investigate how your electronic medical record will work with you having a CPA. Will medication orders automatically be sent to the pharmacy if it, it is prescribed by the pharmacist? Will lab results come to you or will it be sent to the collaborative provider? You want to ensure that you can be successful as a clinician when using a collaborative practice agreement and how the electronic medical record handles the pharmacist using a CPA is very important. Some states require CPA to be more protocolized based. If this is happening in this disease state, then you will make this medication change, whereas other CPAs are more broad in scope and not as prescriptive. Some states require that the CPA is actually submitted to the Board of Pharmacy, whereas others do not, and you just keep your CPA within the institution. One common thing about all CPAs is that they generally require specifics in terms of what disease states that you are managing in collaboration with the medical provider, and it is a written signed agreement between the pharmacist and the provider. And Charmaine, from your experiences in working in the Board of Pharmacy and practicing under a collaborative practice agreement, can you provide some common features of a CPA and some key state-specific differences for those who are looking to set up a collaborative practice agreement? Yes, definitely. There are 49 states, the District of Columbia, and the Territory of Graham that permit pharmacists to practice under collaborative practice agreement. But the terms used and the functions provided vary from state to state based on the pharmacist and the prescriber's scope of practice and the state's collaborative practice laws. For example, there are 43 states that permit pharmacists to prescribe under collaborative practice. And they do this under statewide protocols and other mechanisms. Depending on the state, patients can access medications commonly authorized under statewide protocols, such as naloxone for opioid overdose reversal, oral contraceptives, tobacco cessation medications, travel medications. There are some states that permit pharmacists to prescribe based on diagnostic testing. Currently, there are 10 U.S. jurisdictions with statutes or regulations that allow pharmacists to prescribe contraceptives under statewide protocols or other mechanisms, such as California, Colorado, the District of Columbia. Another key state-specific difference is that some require state regulatory body to approve the CPA before it's used. For example, in Alaska, the board approves the pharmacist and the collaborative practice agreement, whereas in Mississippi and North and South Dakota, the board approves the agreements only. In Maryland, New Mexico, the board approves just the pharmacist, but the pharmacist must submit an agreement to the board. In Georgia and Massachusetts, for example, the board approves the pharmacist only. In New Hampshire, CPAs include quality metrics that are reported to the board annually. So as we see from a national perspective, um, there are many differences based on the state. And the bottom line is every pharmacist should check their state laws. Throughout my time in pharmacy school and during this residency year, I have worked in several clinics where pharmacists practice under a collaborative practice agreement. CPAs allow pharmacists to provide an array of patient care services. A CPA is a wonderful opportunity to develop an interprofessional working relationship with other healthcare professionals. So, Dr. Rochester, in your experience, does the pharmacist need any special training to enter into a CPA? 
In regard to pharmacists requiring special training to enter into CPA, before a pharmacist or physician enter into CPA, they must check their current state laws and regulations. For example, training requirements run the gamut from being just a licensed pharmacist in good standing to very complicated requirements involving a significant amount of training, practice experience, board application, fees, and documentation. There are 33 states that allow any licensed pharmacist in any practice setting to participate in a CPA. On the other hand, there are 12 states that stand out as requiring additional complicated training requirements, such as California, Colorado, Maine, Maryland, Mississippi. For example, in Iowa and Maryland, the requirement includes graduation from a recognized college of pharmacy with a doctor of pharmacy degree, certification by the Board of Pharmaceutical Specialists, BPS, successful completion of a pharmacy residency accredited by the American Society for Health System Pharmacists, and also an approval by the Board of Pharmacy. The bottom line in regard to training is to review the state law requirements. Yes, it's definitely important to review the state requirements as the training for the pharmacist can vary greatly from state to state. So, Dr. Rochester, can any prescriber enter into a CPA? In regard to prescribers, there are some states that allow any prescriber, for example, a physician, a dentist, podiatrist, etc., to enter into collaborative practices. There are several states that allow only a physician. So once again, you do need to check your state's law and requirements. So Dr. Rochester, in terms of a pharmacist working under a CPA, what are some things that a pharmacist might be permitted to do under a collaborative practice agreement? Pharmacists are allowed to do chronic disease management, for example, dyslipidemia, hypertension, diabetes, asthma, COPD, and also allergic rhinitis, for example. There's strong evidence that when pharmacists are part of the healthcare team, these outcomes and medication adherence improve. Pharmacists can prescribe medications, also prescribe based on the results of rapid diagnostic testing, for example, for strep throat or influenza. Pharmacists can also initiate authorization for refills, therapeutic interchanges, ordering lab tests, interpretation, and medication monitoring. It's been valuable to hear some of your experiences in working under collaborative practice agreements. Early in my career, I had the opportunity to initiate and provide care to patients with diabetes under a collaborative practice agreement at a federally qualified health center. This was my first practice site out of residency, and I remember meeting with the physicians that I'd worked with and how excited I was to hit the ground running and assisting in the care of those patients. I walked in day one with a collaborative practice agreement in hand to present to those physicians. And as you can imagine, that didn't quite go over so well on that first initial visit with the providers in that clinic. They had never worked with a clinical pharmacist before and had never seen some of the things that pharmacists can do in assisting in chronic disease state management. Needless to say, that was a humbling experience, but an experience I was able to grow from and ultimately resulted in my first executed collaborative practice agreement about a year later. Since that time, I've transitioned to practice sites to a team-based clinic where I do not have a formal collaborative practice agreement in place. 
Jeffrey, can you describe some areas that would require a collaborative practice agreement or maybe not require a collaborative practice agreement? Many clinical pharmacy services do not require a collaborative practice agreement. For example, reviewing and assessing medication therapy for drug-related problems, performing hypertension and cholesterol screenings, and educating patients are already within a pharmacist's scope of practice. A collaborative practice agreement is not required for pharmacists and practitioners to collaborate in providing patient care. If you and the medical team that you work with decide that you will be working more independently, then a CPA would be helpful to provide chronic disease state management. If you are doing more joint or interdisciplinary team visits, then a CPA may not be required since you can communicate directly with the provider regarding your recommendations. I think it really depends upon what type of clinical work that you are engaging in within your practice. If you are focusing more on transitions of care and medication education, then a CPA may not be the most useful. But if you are actively engaging in specific disease state management, then the CPA can be an extremely useful part to allow you to practice more efficiently and reach more patients potentially. So that others may not end up in a similar situation as I did. If one wanted to get started with a collaborative practice agreement with a physician or physician group, how would you approach that discussion? If you are going to be joining a new institution, this conversation should start when you even interview so that you have an understanding if they even know what a CPA is and if they would be supportive. You may encounter more barriers and hurdles if you have to be the first to even implement a CPA at your institution. Also, I would ask more details about how many CPAs are in place to give you more insight about how widely used CPAs are within that institution. If you are moving into a new role, I think it is really important to get an understanding of what the needs are of the practice. Spend time with your providers, nursing staff, and support staff, and that will help you shape what you may want to include in your CPA. You may need to spend a month or two with these individuals before you even move to the phase of CPA development. I also think it's important to try to identify a physician or provider champion that is supportive of the pharmacist CPA, and they can help show the value of the CPA. After you implement your CPA, not every provider may be on board with referrals, and that is okay. But over time, they will likely see how helpful it is that you have a CPA, including how much you are helping their patients and how you don't have to ask them to put in a new order for that insulin dose adjustment that you make every week for that patient. I think it's important to set very clear expectations on communication of what you are doing under the CPA. Does the provider want to be copied on every visit note? Only on new drug starts, potentially. This can be very helpful so that everyone has clear expectations of how the CPA is going to be implemented. Both of y'all's experience with CPAs is very intriguing, especially to a new practitioner like myself, currently working under several CPAs in my various clinic sites. The CPAs in my clinics were established prior to my starting. Nevertheless, when developing a CPA, what are some pitfalls that should be avoided? Creating an enduring CPA is the goal. So what are some tips that allow pharmacists to have the greatest degree of autonomy? So here's seven concerns of prescribers before pharmacists enter into a CPA with them. And if a pharmacist doesn't understand these seven main questions that the prescriber would like to get an answer to, they can develop a lot of barriers and pitfalls. One is usually a prescriber is concerned about your training or qualifications. So it's important for the pharmacist to be trained in the area that they want to have a CPA, for example, diabetes management or asthma COPD management. 
the physicians or prescribers also want to know what past experience you have in providing this type of service. So you should be able and prepared to answer that question with confidence. A prescriber may also be concerned if it incurs additional liability to them. And so the pharmacist should be able to answer that question that they would not be adding liability and also both of them, you know, have liability insurance. Prescribers are also concerned as to costs. What will it cost them or what will it cost the practice? So the pharmacist should be able to present cost savings to that practice. The prescriber may also want to know if they have the ability to bill insurance for the pharmacist's intervention. Another concern is how will the pharmacist communicate with the prescriber? And finally, the pharmacist should be able to describe their scope of practice in that particular state. So I think one of the first things that one should do with a prescriber is that you work with one that you already have a relationship with and one that you have already developed trust. Be prepared to answer those questions to the provider to allay their concerns. Start first with a few patients and document your outcomes. Present those outcomes to the prescriber at meetings. It should be a quick presentation with very objective facts and maybe even a few patient testimonials. Allow your patients to be your greatest advocates. Garner the relevant certification to demonstrate your expertise and continue to remain updated and trained in your area of expertise. And also provide training to providers, residents, fellows, students in your practice so that everyone will understand the area of your expertise and trust you even further with more patients. Don't make your CPA too expansive right off the bat. Focus on things that are the highest priority for the practice. You can always modify your CPA in the future to expand, and I've done that at every practice that I've ever worked at. In terms of autonomy, I really feel that it is driven by state regulations and sometimes your institution's policies. Additionally, it is really helpful to have regular check-ins with your providers initially about how the CPA is going for the first several months, and then at least annually in case providers want to modify the CPA so that you can expand and help with more disease state management. You may also want to make sure that providers know exactly what you were prescribing or ordering. So it is important to have a system in place that they know if you're going to copy them on your notes initially so they get more comfortable with it because now all of a sudden they're now having someone writing orders under their name potentially. As we see delivery of care continuing to advance in the community setting, what are some areas that you see CPAs going in the future? For the near future, I think we can focus on leveraging the entire pharmacy force to champion for payment to pharmacists for clinical services provided, such as the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services, private payers, HMOs, PPOs. I think for the future that all states should have pharmacists function very similar to nurse practitioners or physician assistants, resulting in very robust state scope of practice that include initiating, modifying, discontinuing medications, ordering lab tests under the parameters of a CPA, and as delegated by the physician. Now, some states are already here, but not all of the states. 
A third thing is to consider not only engaging in remote or telehealth services, but being paid for those services and expanding patient care services in rural areas and also in underserved areas to increase medication adherence, patient safety, and close the gap for these communities. I feel like that CPAs will continue to be expanded in many areas of clinical pharmacy practice. I also feel like many institutions are still just now catching on to the value that a clinical pharmacist can bring to improve patient outcomes in the outpatient setting, especially in pay-for-performance payment models. And having the clinical pharmacist use a CPA can help better facilitate patient outcomes for chronic disease states. Another area I think that CPAs can be used or considered is pre-exposure prophylaxis for risk of HIV also for rapid diagnostic testing that needs to be expanded, maybe even sexually transmitted disease screenings, lab assessments, and therapy implementation. And finally, another area is pharmacogenomics, where pharmacists should be able to perform rapid diagnostic testing, and this will allow pharmacists to manage medication therapy based on results from those laboratory testing. There are a few other areas that I see CPAs being used. Uh, One avenue is specialty pharmacy. Many specialty pharmacies have clinical pharmacists who are doing a lot of education about drug therapy and ensuring adherence given the high cost and investment in these medications. Having a pharmacist with a CPA could allow for additional symptomatic management of these patient populations and drug therapy monitoring. For example, my wife currently works as a clinical pharmacist in multiple sclerosis, and she has a CPA to provide symptomatic management for spasticity and urinary tract issues, as well as providing drug therapy monitoring, lab ordering, and medication access for multiple sclerosis patients. Community pharmacy. I see the potential for more community pharmacies to partner with physician and or physician groups to provide more disease state management in this setting. Why not have a brief hypertension visit and adjust the blood pressure medication for your patient when the patient comes to your pharmacy a few times a month to pick up medications? Also, long-term care pharmacy. Many of our skilled nursing patients may not interact with the provider, but once a month, and these patients could benefit from disease state management and recommendations from a clinical pharmacist in this setting as well. Charmaine and Jeffrey, thank you so much for speaking with us today. CPAs allow pharmacists to increase access to expand available services to patients, create partnerships with other healthcare professionals, and leverage pharmacist medication expertise. Before we conclude today, I want to briefly summarize some of the key takeaway points for our audience. First, it is important to review the Board of Pharmacy and the Board of Medicine's regulations, EHR processes, and check with the credentialing and legal team prior to setting up a CPA. Secondly, pharmacists might be permitted to provide chronic disease state management, prescribed medications, interpret and prescribe based on the results of rapid diagnostic testing, and refill and order lab results. Dr. Rochester and Dr. Tingen, we are so appreciative of you joining us today and sharing your experiences and working under collaborative practice agreements and sharing some tips for our audience about how to get those set up and some of the exciting work that you and your colleagues are doing. You're welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much.
Thanks for listening to Pharmacy Forward, a podcast about transforming knowledge into action. If you like this podcast, please subscribe using your favorite podcast app and tell all of your pharmacy friends and colleagues. Be sure to rate us and send us your feedback. We'd love to hear from you. Pharmacy Forward is produced by the Division of Pharmacy Professional Development at the University of Mississippi School of Pharmacy. For more information about our professional development programs, visit pharmacycpd.org. That's pharmacycpd.org. Thanks for listening.